Good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody here today, and it is October, believe it or not, and I love this time of year, don't you? Uh, the Oaks family is going to be gone for the next three weeks. Uh, they're in Kentucky today, and then they're going on a cruise uh, for their fall break, so they're going to be gone for a few weeks, so that's where they're at. But uh, we're going to continue our series that I've really been enjoying. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it's the book of Proverbs. And I'm calling Proverbs God's Twitter feed because uh, so many of the Proverbs are these small, memorable phrases that many of you, many of you know. I mean, how many of you you've seen like hanging on somebody's wall? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. That's, that's a proverb. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. That's a proverb. That's Long before there was Twitter, God was tweeting uh, some very, very powerful things, and we're going to look at that today. So to start this morning, I would just like to reflect a little bit on yesterday. Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia is widely known as the greatest spectator stadium in the South. And surrounded by its famous hedges, Georgia's home field is one of the legendary facilities in college football. Yesterday, a capacity crowd cheered their Bulldogs to an impressive lead against the upstart Tennessee Volunteers, who looked as if their performance would not lead up to the hype that had been created by a 4-0 record and their first win over the Florida Gators in 11 tries. The Big Orange's high expectations were brought back to reality by a five-star freshman quarterback named Jacob Eason and a relentless defense that was determined not to let the Volunteers prevail. Tennessee fought back valiantly, but the game seemed all but over with time running out on the clock, and then it happened. The tenacious defensive UT line broke through the Georgia line and tackled their young quarterback in his own end zone, forcing a fumble, and a Tennessee lineman fell on the football, scoring what seemed to be the game-winning touchdown. A stunned hush fell over Sanford Stadium as it looked like the boys from Knoxville had ruined their perfect fall day. The blustery Bulldogs, however, were not finished. Against all odds, the inexperienced Georgia quarterback quickly marched his team down the field, shocking the Volunteers with a 47-yard pass to another true freshman, Riley Ridley, to dash Tennessee's hopes with only 10 seconds to play on the clock. Silent Sanford Stadium erupted in pandemonium, while those witnessing this heartbreaking spectacle in my living room fell into a zombie-like state. Too stunned to speak, we watched the last ten seconds unfold in a disappointment-induced daze. In the confusion and mayhem of the Georgia touchdown, however, there was an unnecessary act of pride. Celebrating is one thing, but an unwise Georgia player removed his helmet on the field so that his trash talk could be heard without the obstacle of a mouth guard. Removal of one's helmet on the field is an automatic 15-yard penalty. 
The significance of this unnecessary bulldog mistake was lost for the moment on we who watched because 15 yards or 50 yards seemed irrelevant with only 10 seconds on the clock. For all intents and purposes, the game was over. As a fan, I had no more cheer left in me. Everyone quit, it seemed, except for Coach Butch Jones and his determined volunteers. After the 15-yard penalty on Georgia was assessed, Tennessee ran a respectable kickoff return. They were only 43 yards from a touchdown with only four seconds left. Too long to kick a tying field goal and far too improbable to score a touchdown. Thank you. There are no 43-yard plays in a team's playbook with only a few seconds in a game except for that one play. You you know, that play that is so unlikely that it's been given a religious name. It's called a Hail Mary. It's named such because the quarterback throws the ball as far as he can heave it, and if he's Catholic, he prays for Mary to guide the ball into the arms of his receiver. In other words, it would take a miracle. Of course, Georgia knew what Tennessee's only option was, so they placed all of their best defenders in the end zone to ensure that all of Tennessee's prayers would go unanswered. All eyes were on Joshua Dobbs. You know Joshua Dobbs, the humble quarterback for Tennessee. Joshua Dobbs, the aerospace engineering major, considered to be the second smartest player in college football, Joshua Dobbs, who was awarded the Peyton Manning Leadership Award in 2015. Dobbs, known for his character on and off the field. Josh Dobbs, who gets such little respect from the fans that weekly on call-in shows, fans ask that Coach Jones please try another quarterback. But this was not the moment for another quarterback. For better or for worse, Dobbs was destined for this day. The Tennessee center hiked the ball to Dobbs. His line protected him better than they had all day, giving him time to drop back and throw the ball as far and as high as he could. As the ball left his hands, we waited for the predictable interception or knockdown of the ball as time ran off the clock. But our eyes were treated to one of the most shocking moments in sports that I have ever witnessed. 43 yards downfield, Georgia defenders waited for the ball in what seemed to be an eternal four seconds. We watched as they timed their leaps to knock the football down and put an exclamation point on the victory over the Vols. In the middle of the sea of red, however, the white jersey of Tennessee wide receiver Juwan Jennings outsmarted, outdesired, and outjumped the Georgia defenders, to make a leaping grab and landed on his back in the end zone, cradling the catch that will be played for the rest of the season and years to come on sports highlight reels. Tennessee 34, Georgia 31, game over. 
CBS sports writer Ben Kercheval summed up the day. The Vols are many things. Flawed, talented, frustrating, and more. But above all, they seem blessed. (laughs) What does all of that have to do with Proverbs in my sermon today? Well, actually... It has a lot to do with it because I'm preaching on pride and humility. This morning's sermon is called The Deadliest Sin and the Most Life-Giving Virtue. The Deadliest Sin and the Most Life-Giving Virtue. I was told this week that, Phil, you preach on Jesus, not so much on sin. And that was said as a compliment, and so today's message, I'm preaching on the deadliest sin. Wouldn't you know it? But Jesus is coming in this sermon, don't worry. The deadliest sin. God's tweet for the day from Proverbs is Proverbs 18.12, which says, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. In poetry, in biblical poetry, this is called antithetic parallelism. Antithetic parallelism. If you look at the two phrases of this statement, they are opposites, antithetic. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, or another word is pride. Before a downfall, the heart is proud. And the opposite of proud is humility, but humility comes before honor. The opposite of a downfall is honor. The opposite of pride is humility. And the scripture is saying that before a downfall, the heart is haughty. So in a sort of lighthearted way, I wanted to use that example and that even, even the Georgia coach, when he was doing the post-mortem on the game, said that, that it, was, it was foolish penalties, unnecessary, unwise, immature penalties that cost them the game because of pride. Now, in football, the consequences aren't so much, but in life, they can be deadly. And pride is the deadliest of sins. I want to couple with this um, Proverbs tweet a story in the Bible that (laughs) illustrates very well what I'm talking about. And it's the story of somebody who was bigger than Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton put together. Yeah, believe it or not. This guy was the king of one of the greatest empires that ever was the Babylonian Empire. And in the Babylonian Empire, he was the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, if there was anyone that should be proud of his accomplishments, even today, thousands of years later, it would be admitted by historians that it's one of the greatest empires that ever was, the Babylonian Empire. And the king of that empire was a king named Nebuchadnezzar, one of the slaves... As, as one of the one of the countries they took over, by the way, was Israel, God's children, and one of his slaves was a guy by the name of Daniel. 
who, who worked his way up because he was so valuable to the king, that, that he became one of the, the king's most trusted advisors. And, and one night the king had a dream, and he dreamed of this tree that grew, and this tree produced fruit that fed everyone. And it was, it was a gorgeous, humongous tree whose branches just grew everywhere. But the tree was cut down, and, and Daniel prophesied to him that this tree was his empire and his kingdom and, and his pride that was going to, that was going to come down. That's, you gotta be a pretty trusted advisor to interpret the dream of a king like that. But after the, the dream was interpreted, I'm picking up the scripture in Daniel chapter four, verses 28 and following. It says, but all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of Nebuchadnezzar Towers, of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, no, 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 I want you to notice the words. Look at this great city of Babylon, my own, my, by my own mighty power. I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And then the scripture says, while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you will live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone who chooses. In other words, this is not your kingdom. This is my father's world. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And then it says, after this time passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. This is huge, everyone. Huge. He, he, he looks up to heaven. And it says this. I think this, this phrase is so key. My sanity returned. Can I just pause for a moment and say it's insane to believe that we can accomplish anything without God. insanely he says i did all of this i built the greatest empire that ever was he couldn't have done none of that without god and then it says my sanity returned it reminds me of the story of the prodigal son when it says he came to his senses there's got to be a point in our lives people when we come to our senses when we smell the smelling salts of reality and realize who we are and who God is. And I praised and worshipped the Most High God and honored the one who lives forever. Now watch, before everything he said had to do with I, me, and my. Now now look at the, the turn of phrase he uses. His rule is everlasting. 
His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as the head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Pride. We're going to talk about a very, very important subject today in the book of of Proverbs. The deadliest sin and the most life-giving virtue. What is pride? Pride has been defined as an excessive belief in one's own abilities that interferes with the individual's recognition of the grace of God. It's an excessive belief in your own abilities Blinding you to the fact that without the grace of God, we could accomplish nothing. The early church talked about seven deadly sins. Seven deadly sins. Pride was one. Envy, gluttony, an inordinate desire to consume more than that which one requires. Lust, an inordinate craving for the pleasures of the body. Anger, greed. Sloth, the avoidance of physical or spiritual work. These were the seven deadly sins. But of these seven deadly sins, they all believed that pride was the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. And so I want to ask the question this morning, what makes pride so deadly? What is so deadly about pride? And so if you're taking notes in your, in your bulletin there, there's a, in, your, in your worship guide, there's a place where, where uh, you can take notes and fill in the blanks. The first one here is that pride is the gateway to all other sin. Pride is where all sin... Pride is the original sin when, when, when Lucifer fell from heaven, when he rebelled against God, it was because of the sin of pride. The very first sin of humanity, of Adam and Eve in the garden, was a sin of pride. Thinking that they could be like God. Agreeing with Augustine in the epic Paradise Lost, Milton identified pride as the root cause of Satan's rebellion. Thomas Aquinas um, uh, said that pride was the cause of every sin. G.K. Chesterton said, if I only had one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. T.S. Eliot agreed, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be more important. Even Mark Twain famously said, good breeding consists of concealing how much we think of ourselves and how little we think of the other person. Augustine said it was pride that changed angels into devils and it is humility that makes men as angels. It was pride that made angels into devils and it is humility that makes men as angels. The scripture itself says that all sin can be boiled down to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride is the gateway. You know, they talk about marijuana being a gateway drug. Pride is the gateway sin. Pride is the sin that leads to every other sin. 
if you think of your own life, as I think of my own life and my experience with sin, if I would go back to what the root of, of what that sin was about, I thought I was smarter than my parents. I thought I was smarter than the rules. I thought I could get away without the consequences. That's pride. And it was the root cause of all sin. Another thing that makes pride so deadly is that it is almost impossible to see it when we have it. It's the one sin that when you have it, you don't know that you have it. I believe that it was the C.S. Lewis who said that pride is like having bad breath. Everyone knows about it except you. And that makes it deadly because you can have it and not know that you have it. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let someone else praise you, not your own mouth. A stranger, not your own lips. I remember when I was a senior in seminary and, uh, and I was applying for my first internship as a hospital chaplain and there was a, there was a special like career day at the, at the seminary and so we had um, uh, actually a hospital from Knoxville, Tennessee was there, one from Oklahoma City and one from Boston, Massachusetts and I um, interviewed with all of them to go do an internship <coughs> as a hospital chaplain. And I'll never forget uh, the, the guys from Boston, and they reminded me of what I would think of Boston guys. They wore bow ties and, and suits, and uh, they looked a little, you know, East Coast. Uh, and uh, so they interviewed me, and, um, you know, I did what I thought you're supposed to do in an interview, and that's just, you know, tell how awesome you are, you know. How amazing. I have no experience, but I'm amazing. You, you know, how you ever know that feeling, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, boost your resume, and I would just remember confidently talking to them about all that I could bring to their program and all that, and I got done with that interview, and I said to the guys from Boston, well, what did you think? What do you, we, we came back for feedback, and, and I remember the guy from Boston looking at me and said, well, I frankly think you're arrogant. That was a painful, wonderful gift that he gave me. Because he pointed out something that I couldn't see myself, but he saw in me, and thankfully one of the other hospitals, actually Knoxville and, and Oklahoma City, both offered me positions, and I went to Oklahoma City, and they took me, I'm sure they saw the same thing that Boston saw and understood that some of the pride, how many know that, that life can knock some of the pride out of you? Sometimes when you're young, you think you know it all, and you've got the world by the tail, and it's all theory and no experience, and, and, then, and then you live life, and you meet people, and pray, people bring you down to size, and all of that. It's almost impossible to see it. How would I know that I had pride? Here, here's, here's some questions. Do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than yourself? Do you think of yourself as more spiritual than your mate, others, or others in your church? Do you have a judgmental spirit about those who don't have the same lifestyle choices you do, or dress standards, or how, you're, uh, or how you school your kids, or your entertainment standards? 
Are you quick to find fault with others and verbalize those thoughts to others? Do you frequently correct or criticize your mate, your pastor, or other people in positions of leadership? Do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical uh, appearance, hair, makeup, clothing, weight, body shape, avoidance, uh, avoiding the p- appearance of aging? Are you proud of how you keep your schedule, how disciplined you are, how much you're able to accomplish? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Are you argumentative? All of these are kind of like self-diagnosing questions that, 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 that if, um, uh, and, and some of you are, are, you know, I can almost just see looking around. <laughs> we, we have 20-20 vision, don't we, when it comes to other people's pride. But, but, but the purpose of this little test is to kind of self-examine and look at yourself and what if this applies to me? Where is that pride in me? Because I really believe that all of us, to some measure, have some pride that has to be rooted out. The other reason that it's deadly is because pride precedes a downfall in a, in a, in a sports way yesterday. The pride of that unnecessary penalty led really to a kind of a devastating defeat for Georgia yesterday. Pride precedes a downfall. Why does pride precede downfalls? Because I almost think that it's not like God punishes us or throws us down when we're pride, but it's almost as if God says, okay, you want to do life on your own? Okay, you think you can do it all by yourself? Let's try it. Let's see how it works. Just you. No grace. If you want to make it on your own, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to achieve on your own, if you want to be the self if you want to, if you want to, because of your exercise, because of your good looks, because of your intelligence alone, you want to try to do, go through life, you want to do that, good luck. But if you do that, every one of us know that eventually we're not smart enough, we're not good-looking enough, we're not athletic enough. I used to call myself to my kids indestructo man. That was before about my fourth surgery. I'm destructible. I'm wearing insoles in my shoes right now because my feet hurt so bad. Because I'm getting old, people. And I'm breaking down. And I know now what I should have known then, and that is that I need Jesus. There comes Jesus. I need Jesus. Pride precedes downfalls. Life Church, I need you. I need you. I can't build a church by myself. I can't do the work that needs to be done to see God do the work that we're believing for in this city. We need each other. And on top of that, we need God. Amen. So what's the antidote? You know, know, back to that. The, The scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. Jesus said, I will build my church. Taylor, you're a good worship leader, but you're not good enough. 
to do it without Jesus. And he knows that. He's a humble guy. None of us can do it without God, can we? Unless we have God's anointing, unless we have God's blessing on us. So what's the antidote to pride? The antidote to pride is humility. As you're taking notes, here's the definition of humility. Recognizing that it is actually God and others who are responsible for the achievements in my life. Can you be honest enough to say that if it wasn't for God and other people, you could never have done and gotten to where you have gotten or accomplished what you've accomplished? It's been because of others. And it's been because of God. If it had not been the Lord that was on our side, the psalm says, when men rose up against us. If it had not been the Lord that was on our side when we went through the Red Sea, those waters would have overwhelmed us. If it had not been the Lord that was on our side as we're raising kids, if it had not been the Lord that was on our side when we got that job, how many know that if it wasn't for the Lord, we would all be lost? Amen. Amen, amen. amen. So humility. So just as, just as pride is deadly, humility is life-giving. What is humility? C.S. Lewis put it this way. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking... Not, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself or, or self-deprecation or putting yourself down. It's just you just don't think about yourself as much. That's what humility does. But why is humility so life-giving? Number one, humility qualifies us to receive the grace, and if you want to put next to the word grace, the favor of God. Grace qualifies us to receive the favor of God. God loves blessing people who are humble. God loves to pour out his mercy and his favor and his grace on people who realize that they need God. And another illustration of antithetic parallelism. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. It made me so happy for Josh Dobbs to win that game because he just goes about his business and he does it in a humble way and he's he he had a 4.0 in high school and he never missed a day of school and he doesn't go around bragging and he gets put down a lot and i just love to see when people do well that are humble Another reason that, that that humility is so life-giving is that humility is the key to fulfilling relationships if you want to have a great marriage, you better bring humility into it. You didn't have to say that so loud, Melanie. Dad, gummit. <laughs> Amen. If you're spending your time figuring out who the, is the head of the house, you can forget it. You better honor the other as better than yourself. You better learn to serve 
one another. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look, uh, look not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Being others-focused. If you want fulfilling friendships, don't make it about you. Make it about the other. One of the great keys to happiness in life is to be humble and to, and to make your life about not yourself, but about others. Jesus is our greatest example of humility. Philippians 2 goes on to say, You must have the same attitude that Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his own divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, because he humbled himself, God elevated him to the highest place, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above every other name. Another scripture says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. Do you see the antithetic parallelism there? You do this yourself, but what you cannot do for yourself, God will exalt you in due time. In due time. With 10 seconds on the clock. <laughs> at, how many know at just the right time that God comes through? Hmm. How, how do we humble ourselves? Jesus talked about ways that we can do it. We can, we can give quietly without expecting anything returned. Not, not needing to have the building named after you. But just, just, just giving quietly. When someone is in need. Just be a person of prayer. Not, not to make yourself look spiritual. But to, to go into your closet and pray. And, and fast. Not to make yourself look spiritual. But to put away from the, from the lusts of the body. So that the grace of God can be manifest in your life. And then I'm going to invite the worship team to come. As we talk about this last Reason that humility is so life-giving. And that is, and this is key, folks, humility is the doorway to salvation. You can't be born again without humbling yourself. Being saved means saying, God, I can't do it on my own anymore. I'm not able to, to, to lead my life on my own. And I confess that without you, I'm nothing. That's what it means to be saved. And it's to accept what he did for us when we couldn't do it for ourselves. And say, without you, my life's going nowhere. But with you, I can do all things. Through Christ who gives me the strength. On my own, what does it say about salvation? Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now listen to this. And that not of yourselves. You can't do this for yourself. It's a gift of God. 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. You've probably noticed that I don't talk about the elections. It's not even about which candidates are running for the elections. I work for a different kingdom. I'm interested as an American. I vote and I I believe in being good civic people. But when all of the superpowers and all of the Babylons and even Americas are gone, his kingdom will stand. And of his kingdom, the Bible says, there will be no end. Heaven and earth will pass away. God's word will never pass away. So I don't work for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I work for the greatest potentate of the universe who with one breath could blow us all away. And one life-giving word could bring us all to life. And that potentate loved you so much that he humbled himself and became like you. Me. He's not white. He's not black. Not Asian. He came for all of us. And he invites us. So salvation, we can't even take credit for receiving Jesus as our Savior because he initiates that. (laughs) He reaches out to us. And all we do is accept his acceptance of us. I don't know about y'all, but I need Jesus. I need Jesus. That's probably my most frequent for prayer. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I was up early this morning saying, I need you, Jesus. I can't just preach a sermon, Lord, but unless, unless, Lord, you anoint unless you do the work. I need you, Lord. We can do nothing without you. We can do nothing without you, Lord. Shall we bow our heads in prayer?